Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is our text this morning as we look at God's promise of guidance to his children. And uh, we're going to be looking at that verse in a moment. A number of years ago, we had a guest coming out to stay with us from out of the area, had not been to Philadelphia before. We wanted to give them a Philadelphia tour, and uh, we wanted them to see the historic section. So we're looking at different ways to do that, uh, buses, carriage, uh, and we finally decided on the Ride the Duck tour. And it would be our first time on it, as it certainly would be the first time for our quiet, <laughs> subdued guest. Um, it, if you're familiar with it, it actually is now no longer there. But the Ride the, Buck was, Ride the Duck was basically taking amphibious uh, vehicles from World War II era. It's like a bus inside, but it actually had the capacity to go out on the Delaware River. It was kind of fun. You floated down the river some and drove back up. Um, you went through the old city and uh, on wheels, and so you had this experience, but it was more of an experience than I expected. It was, we, we knew we were going to go through the historic section. Uh, I, I think we went through the historic section. Uh, not sure how much we actually saw, but on the tour, I know that we saw some of it. We saw the, the Christ Church. We saw the uh, Betsy Ross house. We saw the old tavern, the, the Liberty Bell, um, but that was not really the memorable part of the trip. The memorable part included, of course, the duck quackers, and uh, my, my guest did not participate, but uh, I did. But, it, but the most enjoyable, interesting, unique part of the tour was our guide. Our guide was a retired man. Um, I would say he was an opinionated personality with capital letters, and had a lot of opinions about Philadelphia. He'd been a lifelong Philadelphian, and he shared that <laughs> in our tour, which was fascinating. Um, and in the tour, he would raise questions for us, like this was one of his questions. Um, it wasn't really a question. It was more of a statement. He says, you are all probably noticing all the trash on our streets, we had not noticed this. <laughs> he then went on to say at another time, you are probably all wondering what kind of politicians are not getting the trash up off our streets. <laughs> we had not considered this. But I do remember one moment where we came to a street corner and we were stopped at a red light. And again, he's standing up in front of us. You know, he's standing up in front of the bus and he's talking in the microphone and, you know, sharing his stuff. And... He glances out the window, and he goes, there, there. So we all quickly turn to look out the right side of the bus, expecting either a building is going down or a policeman has been shot. But it turned out to be a young teenager at the corner right next to our bus who had made the tragic decision of allowing his candy bar wrapper to fall to the ground as a litterer. And this guy went on about how this is the whole, this is where the, the city's going and the politicians should be dealing with the, it was, it was actually a classic experience. And, but it wasn't really a guided tour of the historic section as we expected. But with, the stakes were pretty low, so we weren't harmed by not getting, and the entertainment value compensated for the lack of guidance that he provided us. But sometimes, having guidance 
really matters. As a Christian, when you're trying to figure out what being a Christian means as an employee, a spouse, a friend, a parent, a marriage partner, the stakes start to get higher. And we find we need a guide. We need a real guide. When you're trying to navigate life in the face of the attacks of the three great enemies of of the child of God, the world and the flesh and the devil, you find you need a trustworthy guide. When you're facing the confusion of suffering, the exhaustion of sorrow, the fearfulness of spiritual attack, or the pain of rejection, you need a guide who is big. You need a guide who is wise. Someone who can really lead you through the the deep currents of life experience. You find that you need the kind of guidance that is talked about in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. A scripture that provides God's promise of guidance to his children. Here's what we read in Proverbs 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you this morning. God, I'm reminded that the psalmist described you with these amazing words. This God is our our God forever and ever. He will be our guide to the end. Lord, you are willing our whole lives all the way to glory, to guide us in this world. And Lord, I pray that we might learn a little more of what it means that you guide us to the end as we are willing to look and listen and learn. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to talk about two things this morning, and the first one I'm going to talk much longer on. I'm going to talk about the requirement uh, for receiving God's guidance And then secondly, I'm going to talk about what that guidance actually looks like. But the requirement for guidance is that we depend on God as our guide. And and there's two ways that this is emphasized, I believe, in verse 5 and the beginning of verse 6. We must depend on God as our guide intentionally. There is an intentional practice that is involved in making God your guide because It's not an assumed reality that's just going to naturally happen. As a matter of fact, he clearly indicates in this passage that there are two options for guidance. Two options to be the resource that you can look to you for guidance. He says, number one, trust in the Lord. The other, he says, do not lean on your own understanding. The word trust actually means to stretch out on. It's a different verb than lean, but it carries the, a, almost a, a synonymous sense. Both carry the idea of leaning into something or resting on something. And he's basically saying there's two curtains. You can choose curtain number one, which is you can trust in the Lord as your guide. Or you can go to curtain two and trust in your own understanding as your guide. Now, Scripture is pretty straightforward about which of the options, which of the curtains they encourage you to choose. In Proverbs 28, 26, it says this, those who trust in themselves are fools, but those who walk in wisdom are kept safe. 
Isaiah talks about following the light of God or your own light. And it says this, let the one who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on their God. But now all of you who light fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches, go. Walk in the light of your fires and of the torches you have set ablaze. This is what you shall receive from my hand. You will lie down in torment. The word torment here is actually the word for mourning. He's saying you'll, you'll mourn it. You'll mourn your choice. You'll, you'll live to regret it is what he's basically saying. In light of that, in our own understanding, it's pretty easy to say, well, I'm confronted with, the, with choice curtain one, trust God. Curtain two, trust in my own resources. Yeah, I think I'll go with curtain one. I mean, that sounds a lot better. I don't want to lie down in, in, in mourning and, and regret it. The challenge, of course, is that isn't always how it plays in life experience. And I believe this is, this is what happens in our lives. When you come to Jesus, and if you have personally asked Jesus Christ to be your Savior and make Him the Lord of your life, you find that there is someone else, in capital letters, who has entered your life with the expectation that He will now be in the driver's seat of your life. And you're adjusting to this. You're learning what this means, that Jesus, my Savior, is now my Lord that he directs me, that, he, that he's in the driver's seat. And so you, you take your first fledgling steps and you begin to read the Bible and you find out, oh my goodness, I, the Bible was never like this before. I, it's now a family book and I'm actually hearing God speak to me as the head of my family, which is exactly what it is. You start to talk to God. You start to have the trajectory of your life begin to change and it begins to change in terms of your use of money, your view of sex, the kind of jokes and entertainment and people that you, you, you find yourself uh, doing life with at the same level. But one thing is very slow to change, and that is in the matter of your go-to for direction and decisions. See, you've had years, in some cases decades, to learn to do life with you figuring it out. You making decisions, you making the call, you, you operating. And your default mode in, in, in our, what is called our flesh is always to rely on ourselves. We might take other opinions, we might read other things. But ultimately, there's only two ultimate choices. There's curtain one, which is God's voice. There's curtain two, which is mine. And even if other people are speaking into me, I'm going to make the call if I'm going to let them be the loudest voice. And so, it's not just a natural thing that you're all of a sudden going to become a Christian and now, well, I'm going to just look to Jesus for everything. And, and you've learned to live life naturally making your life calls. Now, what happens though, on the big decisions you find yourself now having a new reality to look to. You, you start going to curtain one because you realize there are certain things you really could screw up if you don't go to curtain one and you don't go to the Lord. And you start thinking, well, I want to marry the right person. So, so I'm going to look to God to direct me or, 
or I want to know what career, or if I should change careers, or, or we have real trouble with, with, in our family with, with one of our kids, and, and, and I, these are big moments where you get, a, you get a medical result, a diagnosis that is a sobering one, and you say, I, I, I got to look to God. God's got to guide me. I need to know what his will is in this situation. How do I proceed? For some of these decisions, you pull out all the stops. You pray like you've never prayed before. You read the Bible like you've never read it before. You might even go on podcast, How to Know the Will of God. A preacher stands up and says he's going to preach on Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, and you're salivating inside. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is what I need. This is what I need to know. How do you know the will of God? Because I've got this big one, and I need to know now what God wants me to do. You find yourself reading a verse like verse 5. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and the result will be in verse 6. He'll, he'll make your path straight. He'll direct you and guide you. And you say, that's it. I just, I need, to, I need to be sincere enough. I need to give him my whole heart. I need to be diligent enough, humble enough. I need to be worthy that God will unveil his secret will so I know what to do here. And I need to crack the code. Of God's secret thing. And, and, and if I just am serious enough and diligent enough and sincere enough and, 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 and passionate enough and following God, I'll get his answer on the, on the big questions of life. There are a couple of things I want to say here, and I'm going to try to play this out in this study. First of all, God doesn't have a secret code for his will. This is something, if you don't get anything else out of this message, if you don't write anything else out, this would be the thing. God is far more desirous of you knowing his will than you'll ever be. He's not trying to, to buffalo you and outsmart you and, and make you have to, 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 to decipher his, his encrypted message, and he's just waiting till you get all the, all the, the, the T's, crossed and the eyes dotted. He's not desirous of making it hard to know how you can follow his leading. It's not a secret code. The issue, the challenge is that we tend to look at God's will as an event or a moment. That I need to know God's will. I need to crack God's code and decipher the encrusted message on who to marry, or, or how to handle this situation, or, or how to resolve this with my child, or, or whatever it is in that specific thing. But the all your heart thing here then get looks at as that if I trust in the Lord with all my heart, it means I got to work myself into a spiritual frenzy at certain moments that he'll give me the answers I'm looking for. That's not what this verse is about. It is talking about the fruit of a lifestyle of walking and listening to God. It's talking about doing life with God. That the trajectory of our life is to try to be listening to God, knowing God. And, and so in verse 6, he gets very specific about what that means. In verse 6, he then says, In all your ways, acknowledge him. The first thing he tells us here is that if we're going to really be trusting in God, it means that we got to be intentional about it because 
We have two choices, and our default one will be to trust in ourselves. But the second thing he tells us is that we need to be doing that consistently as a habitual practice. And he says it this way, in all your ways, acknowledge him. So I want to unpack two phrases in this verse. In all your ways, the word ways is the word for paths or road. It's a normative word that is used, a visual that's used in the Old and New Testament. Talk about in doing life is what he's basically talking about. As you walk down life's road, uh, in your doing of life, in all of your living, he's saying, acknowledge God. Okay, what does acknowledge mean? That's the second thing I want to unpack. What does it mean to acknowledge him? Well, the word is, in the Hebrew, very similar to the way it is in the English, it actually is built on the term knowledge. And it means that we are not only to possess knowledge of God, but we are in our experience to affirm that knowledge of God, to affirm what we know to be true. That's exactly how we use the word acknowledge in our language. Let me illustrate it. You receive a letter, be it email, be it, uh, be it postal mail, and it says, please acknowledge receipt of this letter. In other words, please let us know it's true you received it. Please affirm that to us. Or it could be a more dicey situation. You're dating somebody, and you're in a sort of an exclusive relationship. You've agreed you're only going to see each other. Uh, you've gotten serious now, and uh, you're going to a party together. And you're dating this girl, and she might be the one, and you might be the one, and so you've got a real thing going, and, and, uh, and you really blow it. Because you get at this thing, and for some reason, whatever the reason is, you don't introduce her well, and she is smoking mad. And she points this out, and she shares with you on the way home this, you didn't even acknowledge me at the party. You introduced me as your friend. Are you ashamed of me? What's she saying? You didn't affirm what's true. I mean, we're exclusive, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean I'm your girlfriend, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Then why didn't you do that? Why didn't you acknowledge what's true? That's exactly what it's saying. We are to acknowledge, to affirm in our life experience what is true about God, what we know to be true. And if you walk with God, if you've been a Christian, if you have given your life to Jesus Christ, I think there are certain things that you would agree with me are true. God is good. God is big. God's powerful. He's kind. He's present. He's wise. To acknowledge him is to verify in our life experience that we believe that, we embrace that, that we lean into that, that these things are true about God. He's basically saying, in all your ways acknowledge God. This is what I mean. Live out what you believe. Act as if you believe that. Acknowledge it in your life experience, in all your ways. So let's try to put some shoes to this. One thing that that involves is we, we affirm what's true, or not what we know about God, when we're obeying him and praising him. Now, we're going to go to the Old Testament, and the most famous example of God in the Old Testament when he is talking about leading people and guiding them is, of course, the scene with, here are the people of Israel in the wilderness wanderings and a big giant pillar of cloud in the background. 
This was a real historic reality, and it's a fascinating thing. This giant pillar of cloud by day, and at night it turns into a pillar of fire, and it says where God goes, follow it, follow it, follow it, follow it. When it stops, set up camp right there, all your tents around. He gave them all the directions, which tribe goes on the east side, which goes on the west, and everything else. And he says, but right in the middle, wherever this, this pillar stops, I want you to build my tent or the, the tabernacle right underneath it because that's where I'm going to dwell in the presence of my people while we're setting up camp. Now, the fascinating thing is sometimes that pillar did not move for months. Sometimes it left in a couple of days. You never know how long you're going to be there. So you're sort of setting up shop saying, as far as we know, we'll be here a long time, but we don't know. So we're going to set in our daily routines. We're going to set up the house order in our tent. We're going to do it because we are at the beck and call of God. When he says to move, we move. So the idea was that God was saying, I'm going to guide you, but part of the way that you indicate in your ways, in your life, in your practice, that I'm worthy of following is that you're willing to move when I move. And so when they moved and the cloud went away, the people didn't, didn't look at it and say, he's not worth it. Let him go. We still have Moses you know, we still have some of the, the mucky mucks of uh, maybe, maybe Aaron will stay. You know, he's the, the head of the priesthood or maybe I know enough to, to lead my family. No, when they saw that pillar going, they said, we don't want him away from us. We want to be in the presence of why. He's worth it. He's trustworthy. He's good. He's great. He's powerful. So we will follow him. We will obey him. We'll go when he goes and we'll stop when he stops. Now, the people of Israel did this well. You never have an account in the whole 40 years wandering where they did not faithfully move and stop according to the leadership of God's Shekinah glory of his pillar of cloud and his pillar of fire. However, they learned, and in that way, they acknowledged what they knew about God. They affirmed he is worthy He's worthy of our obedience. But there's one giant way that they failed to do that. They did not declare his worthiness in their gratitude, in their praise. They were known both in the books recording the historic events and in many of the prophets later as they look back on them as a bunch of murmuring, griping, grumbling complainers. And they may have followed him. They may have obeyed because they didn't dare not obeying. But man, they, they, it's the old kid in the corner who's forced to sit there and finally, you know, he doesn't want to sit down and sit down. Finally, the, the, the uh, father says to him, sit down. The kid sits down. He's, going, he's sitting down in the corner. And he says, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. <laughs> well, they were following, but they weren't happy. They didn't like where he took them. They didn't like the things that they had to trust him for. They were frustrated with the food he gave them. They were frustrated when they had to wait on him to provide water. They were frustrated that he allowed enemies. To, they, were, they were murmuring. They were grumbling. They were complaining. And when they did that, here's what I want you to hear. When we grumble, complain, murmur, we are declaring, 
really affirm in my experience who I say he is. I say he's wise. I say he's big. I say he doesn't, he's too good to be unkind. He's too wise to make mistakes. But my murmuring and my complaining and my griping and my grumbling do not acknowledge him in my ways. I have a grocery store we've gone to for years, and there was a lady there. She hasn't been there for, for years, but she was um, one of the cash register ladies. And uh, she was a fascinating person. She was older, very loud. And I, I described it to my kids. I said, she is a cheerfully grumpy person. And I, she really was. I don't think she was grumpy all the time. She's complaining all the time. But she didn't, it didn't seem to go into her core the way it does for most of us. Just the way she talked to some degree. But I would go through her aisle and I would, this probably isn't totally godly, but I would ask her questions just knowing, just because I was fascinated. I'd say, so how's the day going? I know what she's going to say. And she's, she'd say something, which is, this was a quote of hers. Don't even ask. She said, really, don't even ask. And she was so happy somebody asked. You know, she could then tell me, don't even ask. Now, let me tell you. And I remember one other time I asked her, um, wow, it seems busy now. And I literally just put it out there because I was interested to see what she'd say. I said, wow, it seems busy right now. And she says, I don't know why everybody comes at the same time. <laughs> it was great. It was, she was great. Um, but, but I'll be honest with you. I enjoyed her, and I did enjoy her. And I, I, I actually would aim for her deal, her, her, her register. But I'm not sure I would have wanted to be her boss. I'm not sure because, now I did never ask this question, but you could have if I had said to her, so what's it like working here? Don't even ask. Because if I'm her manager or her boss, and I have somebody under me complaining, it feels bad, right? Because it feels like it's a complaint about the way things are. It's a complaint about the management. God's our management. God's over our lives. And when we grumble, and you say, well, I don't really grumble a lot. How about if we put a megaphone to your heart, to your soul? And when we're going, oh, this, oh man, this is, what, what, this just stinks. This is, I'm so exhausted. Things, so many things, people are, everything's going terrible. What are we saying? The management, he's doing a bad job. I mean, I know he's sovereign. I know he has his providence. You know, he's working. And, 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 and so, what are you saying about how your life is being managed right now? Well, if we really are honest, we'll say, I think he's doing a bad job. This doesn't make sense. I don't get why I'm having this kind of treatment. I don't get why circumstances haven't changed. I don't get why. And, and, and we grumble. Gratitude is a way of saying it is acknowledging what we affirm to be true, that he's good. That he's too wise to make mistakes and he's too good to be unkind. And so what the author of Proverbs is saying, I want you to live your life affirming me as worthy. You do it by your obedience. I mean, if they didn't follow the pillar of cloud, said everything about God, 
goodbye. We like it here, the oasis. We'll take the oasis now. We like, there's water here. Who knows where you're taking us? We'll stay here. That would say everything about God, right? But if they're wandering along and their hearts are just, I hate where he's doing. I'm so tired of life with, you know, out here in the desert. I mean, I would never have taken the desert road. Why do we come this way anyway? We're saying management's not doing a good job. And the Lord says, I am your management. And I want you to affirm me and my goodness and my wisdom in all your ways. And if you do that, I believe what he is saying is we then are glorifying God in our lives. Now, it involves obedience, seeking God regularly in our lives, certainly. But it also involves giving God praise for whatever he brings. And he said, I want you to have this this habitual practice in your lives. To acknowledge God is to affirm what is true about him by my obedience and by my gratitude. So how do we get to that state in our lives that we're living that way? Well, there's one other thing I would suggest. We become people that acknowledge God in all our ways when we are spending time worshiping God. That you will not become a grateful praiser of God, of the management, if you're not in the presence of God. If you're not enjoying God, worshiping God. You will not be obeying Him, quite frankly, because He's going to ask you to do things that are costly. You'll not obey Him. You'll, not say, you'll say, no, I, I, I'd rather be at the oasis than, than take a public stand for Christ. If that's what this involves, no, I, I, I don't want to go there. I don't want to follow the cloud there. I don't want to, it could jeopardize my career if I do that. But if you find out in his presence how worthy he is, how precious it is to be loved by this sovereign cosmic king of the universe, in 1784, a young man became the member of the House of the Lord, a House of Lords in England, in Great Britain. His name was William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce, right around that time, either just before or just after he was, he was elected to the House of Lords, he became a born-again Christian, and he was all in from that moment on. He took Christ as a Savior, and through a series of providential events, God enabled Wilberforce to hear and be confronted with the slave trade in the British Empire. The British Empire was by far the greatest perpetrator of the slave trade in the world. It is estimated that in, in 200 years, the British Empire was responsible for taking somewhere between 12 to 12.5 million Africans and take them into slavery and put them primarily in the West Indies or the United States. One million of them died en route because of the deplorable conditions of ships. William Wilberforce became aware of all these things, and it, it broke his heart. And he took on, initially alone, a crusade against slavery. This was the moneymaker in the British Empire. All of the, the islands in the Caribbean that, that were... Uh, populated by slaves that had been brought over were 
providing incredible wealth to the British Empire and, and the mucky mucks of England. He was taking them on. He fought the fight. He went on. He literally gave almost exactly 50 years of his life to the cause. It was 49 years. It wasn't during that time the French Revolution happened, the reign of terror in the, around 1789 and following. And all of his enemies used that as an example. They said, if you overturn slavery, all those slaves will do to us what the, the peasants have done in France. They'll guillotine all of the uh, middle class and nobility. That's what will happen to us. And so he, he fought against all this. Finally, in 1733, now an old man in that day, in July of 1733, the House of Commons passed a law outlawing slavery, abolishing slavery in the entire British Empire. It had to be ratified in the House of Lords on August 1st of 17, in 1833, excuse me, 1833, August 1st, the House of Lords ratified it. The king signed it into law. But two days prior to that, on July 29th, uh, William Wilberforce died. But he knew, he, he could see, everybody knew it was going to pass by that point. But the striking thing about William Wilberforce, who gave real, literally 50 years of his life for this cause, is that he was anything but a fighter. He was a very sensitive man. He was a man that really even struggled with doing public office. He was a very loyal friend, a people person in that way. He had a small contingency of close friends. Above everything else, he hated conflict. He had severe digestive problems for years, which most people believe was just the incredible stress that he went through year after year after year. Wilberforce was asked, what is it that enables you to fight this fight, that enabled you to do that? He records it in his journals. And he said there was one thing. And he was a man of prayer. He was a man that was in the scriptures each day. But he said, the one thing that enabled me to stay at it was every Sunday. I viewed that day as my Sabbath. I went to corporate worship but I also spent the day taking walks. I spent the day refreshing my soul, replenishing my battery spiritually. Basically, he said, it is what enabled me to go back into the fray on Monday. I was in the presence of God. We live in the fast lane today, right? We know what it's like to live helter-skelter. We know what it's like to live uh, beyond our own quietness. You will not... Acknowledge God in all your ways. You will not have the power to obey. You will not be a person living with gratitude and thankfulness and praise if you aren't quieted in the presence of God. You'll find yourself, as we all do, edgy, angry, frustrated, irritable, blame-shifting. I'm not saying we, that we're going to ever perfectly not have some of those qualities but they will dominate our lives and we will not be acknowledging God in all our ways because we're murmuring, grumbling, frustrated, irritated, whatever it is. And he's saying, I want you to, in all your ways, you can do it, but it's going to mean quietness. It's going to mean being with me. So here's what he's saying, in all your ways acknowledge him. He says, affirm that God is who he says he is. 
and show it by obedience, joyful obedience, and grateful praise. And you will find that you will live that way by being in God's presence, letting him quiet and still your heart. The result is, and I'm going to just take a couple of moments here, what verse 6 says at the end, God will direct your paths. He will choose good paths for you. The word make your paths straight or direct your paths literally means it's, it's level paths. That, that it's not got all kinds of ruts and, or, or, or that it's not twisty and turning. It's straight and it's level. It was a good road. doesn't mean you can see miles ahead. It just means that, that it's a good road for traveling. It's different from what Isaiah 55 said, that when you, you try to light your own way, you find yourself regretting it. That you feel like this, this was a mistake. This is a bad road. It's a hard road. It leads places I don't want to be. He said, lead this road, be on this road. I will, I will choose good paths for you. But he said also, I will lead you on those paths. As a, a New Testament example, it's Paul and Silas. And the right side of that, that big yellow part that's sticking out is modern day Turkey. And the red line is Paul and Silas. And And when they went on their missionary journey, the second one, they didn't know where they were going. They just went with Jesus. And they first were told in Acts 14, they tried to go go left. They were going to go out to Ephesus, which is right at the the big seaport, the second Rome, if you will, the second largest city in the Roman Empire. They wanted to go there, the cosmopolitan Ephesus. But God said, no, I don't want you to go this way. So then Paul says, oh, then we tried to go up to to Bithynia, up to the right, the northwest. We thought we were supposed to go that way. And God said, no, I don't don't want you to go that way. And so they just kept trudging. They walked 400 miles till they got to Troas, which actually is Troy. And when they got there, now they're at the edge of the water. And they said, okay, here we are. And they, they have this vision. It's called the Macedonian Vision, Acts 16, where a Greek guy appears to them and says, come on over here to Europe. And they took the gospel to Europe. But the beautiful picture of that story is, as they were traveling and walking, the Lord was walking with them. And in their ways, if you will, on their road, they did not find it hard to discern the will of God. They started to go this way. He says, no, 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 I want you, I want you to go this way. They started, no, 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 I want you, just keep going. Keep going. Hang with me. Hang with me. That's how following God is. It isn't a secret code book. It isn't that all of a sudden when crisis comes into your life that, that, that now you need to get super spiritual. I mean, probably be good if you haven't been following the Lord and you've been close. But if you're walking with God, when the big questions come, you find out this isn't a secret code I got to crack. This is just leaning into Jesus for, for, for now something else. And, and, and it's not a scary, overwhelming thought. To, i got to find a godly partner. He leads you. He walks with you. He says, just acknowledge me in all your ways. And you'll find it's a natural flow. But Francis Chan reminds us of the challenge. Here's what he says. If you want to be, excuse me, it comes down to many of us do not really want to be led by the Spirit. Or more fundamentally, many of us don't want to be led by anyone else. The whole idea of giving up control or the delusion of it is terrifying, isn't it? Then he says this, the bottom line is, do I want to lead or be led? Then I can be led by the Spirit. If you want to be led, you show it by acknowledging Jesus' lordship over your life. 
Knowing what to do, what decisions to make will not be hard. He's more anxious to have you know what to do than you ever will be. But it does involve surrender. It does involve saying yes to Christ. It involves saying, I yield, Father, to your will. I will obey. I yield, Father, to your wisdom. I will praise. I will be grateful. It involves walking with him, acknowledging his worthiness in all our ways. But when we're doing that, finding the will of God, walking in the will of God is not a hard thing. It's a natural thing. And if he hasn't shown you immediately, you should buy this house, then then you wait. He'll guide. He'll direct. He can make it known. But he does it out of hearts that are surrendered and yielded to him. This morning what I'd like to do is close our service. It's a a video of a song. It's a little over five minutes. It's a song called I Surrender. The song has beautiful lyrics to it. It's a powerful song. And here's some of the words. Here I am down on my knees again surrendering all. You'll hear this phrase later on. Lord have your way. Have your way in me. If you really want to hear God speaking into your life what to do and him to be your guide, you're going to have to pray those prayers. Not just, Lord, have my, your way so now I get a husband or now I get a new job or now I get healing from my cancer, but, but rather, Lord, I want to live my life this way so that you can be continually leading and guiding me in the way you've designed it to be, to be acknowledging him in all our ways. Lord, I pray that you would use this this song as you've used it in my life to just compel my heart again to want to be yielded to you, to want to yield to your will and obey, to want to yield to your wisdom and to praise. Lead us there, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.